Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome again to The Full Ratchet. This is episode 12, where Chicago Angel Glenn Gottfried will be sharing his thoughts and process for early stage advising and partnering with startups. For clarification, this episode is not about long-term governance in a board director or board advisor position. This is focused on the very early stage partnering process between seed investors and startups that can provide mutual benefit for each. And if you've been angel investing for a while, you've probably experienced a fellow angel investor who seems to always be advising the hot startups and presumably getting equity for it. I found myself asking this question, and a number of the startups that I was meeting with kept telling me about this advisor that was linking them with strategics, helping them find investors, connecting them to new business, and it turned out to be Glenn Gottfried. So I felt like I had to get some insight into his approach, and he was nice enough to join me and shed some light on his process. Here's my interview on advising and partnering with early stage startups. Today we have Glenn Gottfried. He is an active angel investor here in Chicago and not only takes an equity position in many startups, but also acts as an advisor to many early stage startups. The reason I wanted to have Glenn on the show was threefold. Number one, you serve as a panelist at Pitch Competitions, and I found that you were asking a number of the questions that I had planned to ask the startup, which is rarely the case. Often, investor panelists have different approaches and ask different questions during a pitch competition that may not help me evaluate in a way that I can get to a fast no. Not right or wrong, just a different approach than mine, while your approach seemed to be more similar. The second reason was that you seem to take a more innovative approach to deal structuring and relationships that many other practitioners are not doing with an aim to set up a better situation for the investor and the startup, whether it be creating incentives for investors to get money in by a certain time or a number of other strategies. I can appreciate that you try to approach things from a win-win mutually beneficial standpoint, as opposed to an investor take all approach that often can limit the potential for success. And third, it seemed to me, Glenn, that you have made connections with many high potential startups that I have come across. Startups that tend to reach the third stage of my evaluation process, which overall is a very small percentage. Um, And it seemed that you would be engaged in an advisory capacity with a number of them. So with that, welcome, Glenn. It's great to have you here. And thanks for sharing your time with us. Well, Nick, it's really great to be here. And I really sincerely appreciate you invited me when I heard you were going to be doing this. And then you, you asked if I'd be willing to do it. I was you know, honored. So I appreciate that. 
Absolutely, Glenn. So walk us through your background and how you first got involved in startup investing. Yeah, so I'm going to try to truncate it because your listeners would be bored to death if they actually heard it all. So uh, I, I was thinking about that and uh, figured out there's four components of my background that apply to what I'm doing today. The first one and probably the most important one is I've been fortunate to lead the growth of multiple companies to exit. And that's been in a product business development capacity or as president CEO. So I'm an operator. Whether you, If you talk to a private equity firm, they're going to say you're an operating partner, you're an operator. What's interesting is when you talk about leading companies through growth, it's what startups are doing. So I had that fortunate experience and I love the business of growing. Uh, that's my core passion and, ex- and it happens to line up with my experience. The second part is I have been an entrepreneur. And as a result, I've gone through the process that these individuals, these teams are going through and having the whipsaws and the pivots and the successes and failures in the past uh, as an entrepreneur. I've also been fortunate that I've been a management consultant fairly early in my career. After I got my MBA from Booth, I was recruited away to uh a management consulting firm, and I got to do classic management consulting on strategy and marketing and organizational effectiveness for five years. And so I got to learn what it's like to be a consultant. And, you know, I bristle sometimes when somebody hears what I do and they say, oh, you're a consultant. And I'm like, no, 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 wait a second. And I'll get into that a little bit later. But there are attributes of a consultant that do apply to being an advisor. And uh, I'm fortunate in that I have mentored a lot of people in the past and that is accelerating the number. And therefore, I had the experience of advising and mentoring. So if you looked at Glenn Gottfried Inc. from just over four years ago, where I exited the last company and made the conscious decision to do this, my own trajectory is today related to the startup of me four years ago. I'm now reasonably well known in the community, but it's taken four years to get there. Hmm. Okay, so I'm no different than a startup. It's why startups have hockey sticks, because brand development takes time. Experience takes time. And I've devoted that time and energy to get there. So those are that's my background. I could tell you more about the companies I've run, but the nutshell is the application of information technology software to solve business inefficiencies, whether that's consumer or B2B. Okay, so the topic today is influencing from within, the benefits of acting as an advisor. So I mentioned sort of on the front end intro that Glenn does a a really good job of connecting with startups early, um, working with them, taking an advisory capacity, and then bolting that together with an equity position as an investor. So before we jump in, I'd first like to establish the stage and fundraising situation of startups that you often target and work with. When you first engage, are startups in the fundraising process? And if so, what stage are they in? Or what are they considering raising? In this particular case, founders are reaching out when they are just starting to think about the fundraising or they're heavy into it. It's an interesting dynamic that once they've raised the funds and they're past that, it's rare that I get connected with them. Uh, they could be in the middle. They might have raised half a million out of a million. They could be just in the early phase of trying to develop the, the documents, but they're definitely in a fundraising mode. 
I purposely, because of how my personal investment strategy runs and my time strategy, I spend a lot of my time with middle market companies on the board and strategic advisor who pay cash and cash and equity. When it comes to the early stage world, the startup world, I passively invest in BCD rounds where most of them or virtually all of them are outside of the Chicago area. They're much further along. They're backed by some real heavyweights. And the ones that I look and focus on for the purposes of being an investor and an advisor board member are going to be very early stage. Mm-hmm. In what sort of directional amounts are they raising at, at that early stage? Well, uh, one of the first conversations I'm going to have with them revolves around what they need it for <laughs> and therefore how much. But uh, it could be anywhere from their initial seed to you know three, four hundred thousand dollars to a million and a half plus. Again, you find that uh, look at the entrepreneur, the business model, the market they're in helps dictate you know how much money they're raising and for what purpose. It's always funny to me when you ask a startup how much they're raising, they throw out a million and a half, and and you ask why, you know, what's your burn rate, right. what milestone does it get you to, and, uh, and, and yeah, what they hear is what the general marketplace has told them. Oh, you should be asking for this, right? Right, yep. and, and, yeah. and so that's what they they do, and you go, come on. Guys, yeah. Well, that's a topic we could uh, we could spend a whole nother hour on. So maybe we'll table that for another time. But all right. So b- before we address the why and the how of working with startups, let's start with the where. So where do you find startups with uh, a strong potential? First off, you had earlier mentioned I do sit on, uh, I judge uh, and sit on these pitch events and things like that. So a certain percentage of them do come from that environment. And I'm fortunate that several organizations view me as a qualified panelist. So that's group one. I have developed uh, good relationships with a number of the angel groups in the Chicagoland area, whether it be uh, VentureShot, Hyde Park, Heartland, West Suburban, Cornerstone. They, not always, but they'll invite me to, to some of them, particularly when it, it makes sense and it's relevant. The other thing, and this is the one that angel investors or anybody who wants to be an advisor or an angel investor, I meet with so many early stage companies and I'm on the board of so many and advise so many at this point that I'm getting referrals directly to these founders who are asking their cohorts, hey, who would you talk to? Who should I reach out to? And so I'll get introduced again. That goes back to been doing it long enough. My own brand is developing where I'm seeing things over the transom that I'm not even out there looking for. Rather, uh, other angel investors are saying, hey, Glenn, what do you think about this? Would you like to, to talk to the founder here? I think these guys forget the money issue. They need somebody who can help them move forward. And they know that I will always give it an you know, a founder, 30 minutes. Whether they get an hour is is dependent upon that first 30. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it's a very broad range that uh, is available out there for any angel investor to go to. You get to pick. Some angel investors, and I've actually you know, had early discussions with people who wanted to get into angel investing, and they're asking me that question. And they're being pitched by the angel groups to join And for some people, that makes all the sense in the world. That's really where they should be going. And I think that's a a good endorsement for 
plugging in to the startup environment, the ecosystem, wherever you're at. Uh, if you're going to be a practitioner, if you're going to be a professional doing this, so many strong leads come through referrals, people you know, whether it's startup referrals, it can be other investor referrals. Certainly, if you're looking to get involved in a serious way, you got to plug into the network. So once you've identified a startup, what happens next in the initial engagement process? I'm glad you call it an engagement process, you know, both parts, because as I alluded to, I will take a 30-minute coffee with pretty much anyone. Uh, if I'm referred to them, I've seen them. That 30 minutes is the start of a go-no-go decision process that continues for a period of time. In that first 30 minutes, number one, I'm sizing up the entrepreneur. My first hurdle in any involvement starts with the entrepreneur, bet on the jockey, so to speak, right? For any entrepreneur who's listening out there, if you're not coachable, if you're not open to listening and evaluation, you're never going to get a second meeting with me or, or the likelihood drops off significantly. So that first 30 minutes is that. But at the same time, that first 30 minutes of engagement process is learning about that business or if I already know about the business, I've seen a deck, getting a feel for that founder, them getting an opportunity to get a better sense of me. You know, because an investor advisor is a different thing than a pure investor. You know, they, the founder side, if I want them to think of me as an advisor, it's a two-way street. If I'm just an investor, then I'm just a money person and they can treat me as such. So it's a two-way street, very much so. So that's stage one, is is that 30-minute to one-hour conversation with them. My wife argues with me. She doesn't listen anymore or all that often of these uh, hour conversations because <laughs> she's gotten tired of hearing of them. But routinely, I'm going to give some critical advice, suggestions, perspective in that one hour. She's like, you're giving it away. No, I'm engaging in the process. If they find, if I think they're worthy and I've given them some perspective that they find worthy, it means we're going to have a follow-up meeting. Okay, so that engagement process is delving into an issue that they are facing and providing a little framework. So I usually have these meetings and, and the first thing I'm saying, what do you need? Why are you here talking to me? What is the most important thing that uh, you're facing right now? And of course, their initial reaction is money most times, right? I'm trying to raise money. I'm like, no, let's let's talk about a little bit more than that. And when you start getting in the guts of it, they start talking about their business model. They're, they're really looking for guidance and perspective. And sometimes that first hour meeting, I've given my advice and counsel and they depart. I'll see them, but there's no investment. There's no advisor. And that's okay. As a matter of fact, it, you, you'd be upset, I think, with me if I said every one of them leads to something. No, it's probably like with my current list that I'm engaged with, I've probably talked to 20 times, 30 times the number of companies that I've actually ultimately said yes to. So that's sort of the initial meeting. And then how, where does it go from there? You've talked about how you sort of frame this advisor approach and you're providing free advice. You know, right. you're not charging startups to... Right. To meet with you or... Uh, I wish I could. <laughs> yeah. So so where does it go from there and how do you get to that point where either they're approaching you or you're saying to them, there's a relationship here and there's something we can do together? Um, it's, it's an excellent question. So at the end of that hour, hour and a half, 
uh, first meeting where I've may have been critical about a particular piece or made a suggestion for them to evaluate. If I've done my job, they're probably reframing their own thought process and saying he's given me some critical feedback and perspective. And that goes back to that first hurdle. Is that entrepreneur coachable? Do they listen? And so the really good ones and the ones probably that'll make to the next phase, they actually do take that. They go back and they think about it and they're going to reach out to me. I mean, I'll always send a thank you and, you know, or they send a thank you, but that's also that's one of those gating factors. It's not my job to pursue them per se, hmm. but rather their initiative. And the part of the reason for that is there are plenty of startups, plenty of great ideas. If it's just purely if all you're being is a pure angel investor putting money in passively. Yeah, sort through and pick the best deals and put the money in and then see if they reward you. That hurdle of them actually evaluating and getting back to me and wanting that second meeting is my first is another assessment point of that entrepreneur. If they're willing to do that, that means there's a connection starting. So it's a more passive approach in that regard. Rarely do I get hot enough to be the reach out point. Now, there are certain circumstances where after the fact, now they're on my radar screen, I may have a connection. I may have something come up down, you know, a week, a month later that is relevant for them. And I'll give them that connection. I mean, it, again, it kind of puts me back on their mind. And I know they've got a lot of other things rolling around. And so I'm the, in some respects, maybe the last thing they're they're thinking about. But I also believe that our job, you know, when we're doing this is, hey, I saw this, thought of you, here's the connection. I'm not going to tell you that it's going to work for you or not, but here it is. Do what you want. So that second phase is nine out of 10 times they're coming back to me and saying, hey, can we meet further? I have some other questions. And there it can then get into a very fast engagement relationship or it could take a long time. I mentioned one of them within two weeks said, I'd like you to join our board of advisors, not an investment. This was just, would you join our board of advisors? And uh, of course, you know, I'd done a little bit more diligence around it, but uh, said, yeah, let's have that next meeting to talk about what that consists of. So you continue to work with them in an advisory capacity and help them with connections right. until it seems like they come back to you and say and make you an offer to join. No, the board sometimes. Or? Well, it's it, it, sometimes I have to push. I'll make the request. Anybody who's been in sales before. Sure. Right. Yeah. If you're listening to the signals, you know when to do the ask, right, to close a deal. And so in some cases, they're the ones who initiate it. But if things are stretching out and I think it's time for me to pull the trigger and I think it makes sense and I'm the one who's going to do the ask. Now, remember, there's situations where I meet with somebody, they don't have all the documentation necessary to really go out and raise money. And so even though they think they're needing to raise money, they actually are well before that stage. Those are ones I'm going to pull the trigger faster, get them to either say yes or no, because I'm not going to give them free advice forever uh, and essentially say, look, if I'm going to do this, I need X before there's even a dollar exchanging hands. 
right? So I'll pull the trigger. In other cases, they have the documentation already formed. They already have some investors. And in those particular cases, I recognize that I have to build the credibility with that founder. And by doing so, developing that trust and relationship and value, now they're much more likely to be open to, this is our guy. This is the one we want as our advisor, our board member. In most of the cases where I'm sitting on the board, I am the designate for the board position that's voted by both classes of stock in almost all cases. Even though, let's say on a million dollar raise, half a million has been raised to date, I end up becoming the at-large board director, not the designate by the preferred shareholders or the that investing group, not by the founder, but rather the one that, that is representing the independent representative. Is that a challenge or is that just having the right term structure around your advisory position? Uh, that's uh, There's a legal component to it, which revolves around the shareholder agreement and the offering documents and things of that nature. And by the way, I mean, there's certain situations where they're only raising convertibles, so there is no board position for the convertible debt holders. What the entrepreneur is looking at is they need somebody who is supportive of what they're doing, but also provides that independent perspective that makes everyone comfortable, you know, really comfortable. And that's, you know, where I try to, 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 to bridge. I'm there for the entrepreneur and I'm looking out for their interests, but I also have a higher duty to the company itself, right? So yeah, there'll be situations where raise of half a million convertible, I get named as the independent board member. Other cases, it's a, a priced round, preferred shares, and I get named as the independent board guy. I go into the offering documents, uh, they announce it, and I pull the trigger, they pull the trigger. So help us understand what the key benefit for the investor is of taking an advisory position. Okay. So I, I, you know, it's, it was interesting when you, when you presented the topic to me and I was thinking which one to take and whether this makes sense. So I'm going to take a step back and say back to that earlier conversation point of experience versus passion. And first and foremost, as an angel investor looking to be an advisor, if you don't have the necessary chops and expertise, you're doing both yourself and the company a disservice. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the flip side of that is if you do have that necessary expertise, knowledge, network, then the fact that you become an advisor means you get to better support the growth of this company that you put your hard-earned dollars into, and therefore you should be increasing the likelihood of success of this company. So you have a seat at the table, not just as a some shareholder, but you're actively engaged. And the key benefit is that you're fundamentally impacting where the company is going to go. It's up to the CEO and his executive team and so forth to execute. And you think about what board roles really are in a board of directors role. You set policy. You set and help and approve strategy. If you have the necessary chops and expertise to help them on the right strategy, go to market, so forth, then you're letting them avoid mistakes, reducing cycle time, fewer pivots, connecting faster, giving them a biz dev, that first client, the third client, the referenceable client. Then you're adding tremendous value to the situation. 
I hate meeting advisors who bring nothing to the table and they actually make things more inefficient. I kind of reflect the story that uh, if you talk to any of the companies that goes through an accelerator, that 90 day intense practice, where a hundred mentors, 200 mentors, the first 30 days, they're inundated with these guys, right? And I happened to advise one of the companies that went through Techstars. And um, before they started, I warned them. I said, you are going to get polar opposite suggestions, recommendations. One will say this and the other will say that. So which is right? <laughs> okay. And I said, that's your job. That's going to be your job. When you finally have a company that's either raised some money or is in right in the middle of the raising money, but also going to market, you don't need polar opposite just because you've got somebody who thinks it's a great idea. That's bad news because that just means the, the CEO is, you know, whipsawed around. So that's why I have a problem when you've got a, a, an advisor who doesn't have that experience and so forth. Anybody can come up with the ideas. Anybody can brainstorm and go, well, maybe you can do this or maybe you can do that. You got to have some basis as an advisor to be saying what you're saying. It may be polar opposite of where they're going. But if you have a basis for it, that gives the founder, the entrepreneurial team, the understanding of what do we need to evaluate and why you're making that kind of comment. I never tell anybody I'm gospel. What I'm telling them is, based upon my experience, what I've seen, I think this may make more sense than what you're currently doing. Your job as the entrepreneur is to go assess it and come back and say, you know what, Glenn, you're wrong. And here's the reasons why. And guess what? In that process of telling me why, I learned more about the company and the situation, and therefore I'm going to become a better advisor. Or they come back and say, you know, you're kind of right, but not exactly the way you said it, but I'm going to make some shifts here. Or in rarer cases, they come back and say, you know what? You're absolutely correct. And I've got a, a specific situation where the business model, and I understood why the entrepreneur was, was talking about a subscription-based model, because that's the buzzword. But that's not how people value this particular service that they're offering. Yeah, it's got to be appropriate. Right? He told me afterwards, I really didn't believe what you were saying, but I trusted you enough that I went out into the marketplace. He went and he talked to the marketplace and 90% of the prospective customers said they liked my model versus the subscription model. And it revolved around the value equation for the client. And it actually doubled the total addressable market. Yeah, when I talk to other investors about their engagements with startups, I always encourage, have them test, test, test. Absolutely. You know, find the target market. It's easy and it can avoid headaches and pivots later on. But So I hope I answered the question. In yeah. some respects, I'm waving off. I'm basically saying, be aware of yourself as an investor advisor and rigorously evaluate yourself. Say, am I going to add value to this situation? You have to be the one you know, who is honest with oneself. The reason I say that is founders raising money, money to them is in their initial mind is everything, right? Mm -hmm. They will do things contrary to the best interests of them, like bringing on an advisor who doesn't have the skills because they see that shiny check, okay? So they're where behaviorally, most of them are not in that sweet spot of saying, who's the best person, right? And so the first part is you better, you yourself better have 
very firm idea where you're going to add value. And the beauty of that is then when those situations do come up, you know in your heart of hearts, you're going to add value. You're going to help accelerate the growth of that company. You're going to be better at helping the company raise funds. You're going to be better once the funding has occurred in guiding that team, helping them understand where they need to go, and everybody gets rewarded as a result. In this ego-driven business that we're in, you find people you know, taking these advisory positions in disciplines or in verticals that they have no experience in. And I, it may be a natural tendency, but uh, I think the investor does their self a disservice as well, not only on the financial side, but timing. You can spend so much time advising any individual startup. And if it's not something in your wheelhouse, then not only are you reducing their chance of success and your time to cash, but you're you're wasting your own time. So then right. you don't have as much time to spend with the ones that you should be advising or you should be investing in. Absolutely, so. Nick. Absolutely. And and, and actually, that, that raise, segues to an interesting point. When I do meet with founders and we talk about me in a board advisor or board of directors role, I'm very clear about articulating where my value is to them so that they understand what they're, you know, getting into and whether I fill a particular capacity or not. We also then talk about who else is needed. We really look at and say, who do you need? Okay. That's not me, but someone else. Maybe they need somebody who's a little bit better at finance. Maybe they need somebody else who's better at the marketplace. Cause sometimes I'm brought in because of my core general expertise, not specific to a particular market or otherwise, but the fact that I can mentor them to become better CEOs, right? But in those situations, I got to help them find or they've got to find somebody who knows that industry like a rifle shot. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. Is there a way that you distinguish between more board members and actual role players? So let's say you need somebody who's experienced in sales in a particular vertical, right? Yeah. Um, you know, how do you distinguish as an investor, you know, this group needs a full-time guy doing this or this group needs a board advisor that has connections? That's a great question. Stage of company, where they are at in the, how much have they raised? Have they raised it all? Are they going to market right now? 
are they still in the development phase of the technology product service, whatever that may happen to be, where, quite frankly, if they're in that earlier phase, I don't think you need an outside salesperson. The founder better be, or one of his co-founders better be that person. And by the way, there's bigger trust from the buyer that if they say they're going to do something, it's 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 going to happen as opposed to salesperson. So stages is critical. And uh, if they're at X stage, it kind of falls out very naturally as to whether they need the advisor to help them find, to open the doors, or they need the actual hard-hitting salesperson. Uh, clearly, if you have the product developed or the service developed, and you're now in the phase where, and you have your reference clients, you are more likely to need, for example, that salesperson who has the right connections, not as an advisor, but as a full-time role. So it's a natural outcome, but it's situational dependent, like most of these things. And I've even seen situations here in town with companies that bring on an advisor, somebody who has a job, maybe in the industry already, but is a natural strategic advisor in their own job. They command a few hundred thousand dollars. And I've seen them eventually take a position with the company as they got later stage. They raised more money. Then they came on board, you know, in some sort of equity and and salary. You know, and that's just such a great point of... um, some of the wannabe angels that I do end up meeting, uh, in some cases, they're out of a job, right? They've, and they're viewing this as a mechanism to find a job, but they don't understand that, uh, they'll never get paid the salary, particularly early on. And so they get this conflicted stage for them. They, they want to purport to be an advisor. But they also are trying to get money and they'll put a little money in to get the seat at the table. And so that's one of those caveat, caveat emptor. Yeah. yeah. We, we do not recommend that. So I know, but, but it happens, <laughs> it happens more often than you, you might realize out there. Huh. I I didn't want to lose sight of this, but another peripheral benefit, I guess you could call it, maybe not the key benefit, is when you're an advisor early on, sometimes you get, you know, equity in return for that. Sometimes you get a discount on the next round. (laughs) One of my my favorite topics. (laughs) So you and I talked about this the other day, and you got a good way of talking about tranches in sort of this evolutionary process of the fundraise. So the fundraise itself isn't static. You know, there's not always one set of terms. And that's what every investor signs up for, right? There's early investors that are taking on more risk than the later investors. Anyway, can you provide some color and some insight on that? Yeah, so I'll start with, I don't know whether it's 9 out of 10, 8 out of 10 times. If it's an active situation, I actually don't put money in right away. I get the role first, okay? I get the, in other words, I'm not paying to play, okay? You're smarter than me. (laughs) Uh, I get the founder to agree that I fundamentally bring as an advisor, a director, value to the table that is not related to putting cash in. Now, there's some other reasons for that, as, as you and I previously have talked about, which revolves around angel investing is just a piece of alternative investing, which is just a piece of overall investing. And so it's a very small slice of the total pie and one has to evaluate your own personal situation and make sure you're doing those right, you know, allocating it properly. So assuming the engagement process has gone well, 
and a trigger has occurred of either them asking and me accepting because I do turn it down on occasion or actually more often than not because people will a lot of times they come out more with an advisor request sooner than you want them to. Uh, I will get engaged as a board member or as an advisor, depending upon the circumstances. And at that time, we negotiate equity right at that time, whether that's stock options, founder shares. I have gotten founder shares. I've gotten founder shares that then vest. I've gotten upfront founder shares with additional stock options, all, all manner of, of equity perspective without any money from my pocket going to them. Now, here's what's happening and part of the argument. When I join your company as an advisor, as a board member, I am adding value. Now the team is stronger. The valuation, therefore, of the company is going up. I want a piece at the valuation premium coming on because of that impact. Okay, so it's fair enough. It's a it's a reasonable argument, and it it's honest, and the entrepreneurs actually do get it. So let's say I'm not on a board, but just advising. And some months go by, and I've been helping them with their documents, the pitch documents, their business strategy, their go-to-market strategy. And it seems like they're now at that point where they can start doing some real fundraising. I mean, the true angel round. In some cases, they need a little bit of capital to bridge between where they're at right now and to show the investment community that they can go from point A to point B, and that point B actually adds more value and justifies either the cap on the convertible note or the, or the price of the round. I'll make a decision at that point as to whether they need that money. If they need, truly need that money to be able to bridge, then I'll make a decision on investing. But that's when I have convertible, harsh in, in, in their terms, appropriated as the angel investor terms, uh, relative to what I expect. Not with any bridge you should have. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Very strong terms. Absolutely. This is where I think most angel investors who I've met fall down. They really don't understand the full dynamics of the phases, the tranches that go on and therefore demand the right amount of discount, the right cap rate, whatever it may happen to be. And we talked a lot about all these different ways. You had some really unique things that I loved and will start incorporating in my own, you know, negotiating of convertibles. So that's part A. Part B is now you're actually going out to the marketplace. Now we are raising money from the angel community and Sometimes the strategies have to revolve around tranches. The first angels doing the first hundred thousand. Let just use an example of a, of a half million round, and they've already raised some friends and family money before, and now they're going out to the market in a more professional capacity because they, they really are dealing with third parties who don't have a relationship specifically, and they have to show the economic value and and the opportunity and so forth. In a lot of cases, I'm going to be saying that first convertible, the first hundred thousand, the first fifty thousand gets a bad, better discount. It's the, even though, you know, it's an artifact of how things operate that they'll raise half a million dollars. And now, as you said earlier, they'll close. It's a running close as opposed to an escrow and, and only breaks after they reach the half million dollars, right? It's an artifact of what goes on today is it's a take it as it comes in and start working. Well, in reality, that means there's a de-risking going on through time. 
the first ones in are taking the highest risk. So the really savvy investors, Angel, and I tell this to the ones who really have money and are trying to get out there ahead of the curve, is take a better, a bigger discount, take a lower cap, reflect the fact that you really are about, you're part of that half million dollar round, but you're signing that check over $50,000, you're adding a lot of value to them right there and then, and therefore it should be reflective of it, the economic value, right? Either A, don't be first money in, or B, if you're first money in, you should be rewarded for it. Correct. So this topic of, of uh, valuation and negotiating the terms and all that is its own discussion. It's its own course. You know, when, when you had down here later, is there a topic in venture investing that, that you would suggest be covered? Guess what? That is the series that should really be covered, first and foremost. And I think we as a group of angel investors, you know, the company founders don't like me because of this, because I'm advising the angel investors on how much stronger to be on that part. So they're kind of, but they get it. You know, that's the funny thing is now I'm an advisor to them and I'm saying, I think you need to give a bigger discount. I think you need to have multiple tranches. And because I really think you have to do your investors right. And there's a scarcity component and there's a, you know, it just increases the value equation for both sides. Well, and, and you're trying to get the startup funded, right? right. So, right. I mean, I see these guys doing these rolling fundraisers for them. Yeah. They got the same pitch at I every event. A, I have a situation right now where, uh, the original, uh, terms was a million and a half. They closed about a half million and they have gotten to another level. And through that process, their education is much higher. We just cut the million and a half down to a million. Okay. The round will take a little bit of an oversubscription. So, you know, we'll take 1.1, 1.2 million in totality. Uh, and realization for the earlier investors and even these later investors that we don't need quite as much money right now. We really need to focus not on the funding raising that's taking two years, but start moving forward. We'll get to a point, And if we're successful in getting to that point with now the million, the next round, is not a three and a half million valuation, but six. And so all those other investors are going to go, great job. Great. And they're going to want in on the next round as well. Yeah. So by doing it the way that we're describing here, you are accelerating or should be accelerating the speed. The later angel investors are getting in at a better price point or the correct price point, better risk reward price point for both the company and for them. And they're respecting the thing. It's interesting. And one of the companies that I thought did a great job, and this is a one that I'm more of a passive investor than anything else, was uh, advanced cooling technologies here. Heartland Angels had put on a, a pitch event with them, and I, Ron was kind enough, Ron Kirshner was kind enough to invite me to it and love the pitch, love the entrepreneur, love the market they were in. At that point, I knew relatively nothing about med devices. But I really like the situation. Their offering document was crafted well. They had a close date, not a dollar amount, but a close date that if you put money in by this date, you got this discount. And if it was after that date, you got a different discount. Hmm. And, uh, which was really smart on their part to do right from the get go. So they, and they've done things really, really right all along. They've, they've accomplished 
took them longer to get to some of their metrics. They're now in a, a raise right now, which I think is close to closed anyway. Uh, valuations have gone up. I sent a note actually to the to the CEO saying you're too generous on the on the pre that you could have gotten more. And he was like, thanks for championing me. But, you know, after discussions with the current investors and so forth, I agreed not to be piggish about it and gave them a lower. And and, and I, I, I respect that. But yeah, so they've done a, a, a tremendous job of following that curve of who, when, how, what stage valuation increases and minimizing the total capital invested uh, as needed so that at any point in time, if there's a failure, there's less loss to the market. Yeah, the reality is we hope that each of these startups are experts in their discipline and in their market, but rarely are they experts in the fundraising process. So that's where they need uh, individuals to help them in an advisory capacity to make sure that it's a fair balance and that they're going to attract enough investors at terms that make sense for where they're at. Okay. All right. Let's close this out. Glenn, from a strategic standpoint, what would you encourage angel and early stage venture investors to keep front of mind as it relates to today's topic? <laughs> Man. Um, I actually, besides everything we've covered. <laughs> yeah. Besides everything we've covered. Um, different people have different meanings for strategy, right? But the general way would be what's the current position of the company in the marketplace today? Where are the trends, the generalized trends and so forth moving forward? How do we attack this marketplace and and grow as a result? And what trends do we see happening so that we can be faster to a particular arena than someone else? Well, it applies to this too, kind of the same way. What is your personal core strengths and capabilities? How does that align up with the needs of that company that you're talking about putting money in and being an advisor to? Uh do you have a short-term ability to support them or is your expertise and capabilities something that will be long-term? You know, and when I say long-term, two years, three years, four years along the path. Earlier, I had made the comment about I'd get back to consulting. Uh, consultants are brought in for a specific issue. It's transactional in nature. An advisor, a board member is about really understanding the whole and the path. There are going to be multiple issues come up and you want to be in a position of providing that guidance through all stages or at least reasonable stages of its development. And so strategic positioning or strategic standpoint is if you bring that stuff to the table and it's a clear matchup, you, number one, should be able to get the equity economic value of being that advisor. And it's not just the cash you put in. So it's cash plus that. And that is where, circling back to the core, that's where you're going to get the most economic rents for your time. Mm -hmm. That is where you're going to get the best value for your time. That is where you're going to, your investment multiple will go up more if you focus and concentrate that way. When you run too far afield, it gets dispersed and your economic rents are going to diminish as a result. And time is money. Regardless, I mean, it's a cliche, but the reality is it is. And if you spread it too thin, you won't get the ultimate total returns that that you would anticipate. Great. We talked about this before, cover any topic. You mentioned sort of going much deeper on um, the process of the fundraise and how... Hmm. 
it can be separated into tranches and the nature of discounts at, at different tranches and bridges. And, yeah. uh, but who would you recommend or who do you think would be great to, to speak on that topic? Any ideas? Um, well, first off, I actually think our conversation that we had separately, that you're actually, you know, you're far ahead than most people are right off the bat. So I'm going to give you a, a personal plug and say, talk to Nick. You know, <laughs> you, you actually did a good job. I mean, I was, I was impressed with, I know I came up with some things that you said, wow, I hadn't thought of those, those aspects to it. Uh, but you also had a couple things that I'm like, oh, you know what? I got to incorporate into it. Uh, there are what I would call, uh, uh, I'm not going to name names at this point. I don't think that's appropriate. Uh, there are various groups and, uh, people who have been doing angel investing for a significant period of time who've seen a wide range. And I would say those are the individuals you reach out to. But as a founder, as opposed to an angel, so speaking from the founder side, be like, go to those individuals who are not your target organizations that you're going to raise money from. In other words, it's hard to go into somebody and ask advice and counsel on pricing and terms and so forth if it's the person you actually want to raise money from. Sure. What you're going to do and you should be doing as a founder and also, by the way, an angel group is the angel investor is, again, you know your markets and you are comfortable putting money into med, med tech, for example. Uh, go talk to some people who are not your typical, uh, both outside of med tech to get that perspective. If you're in med tech, you go to some of the other people who've been around doing it before. And ideally, you ask for examples in the past and you take a look at them. But here's a difference between angel groups and individual angel investors. Angel groups negotiate as a group, not as an individual, right? And so if you are a member of an angel group, you're going to get the terms that are associated with how that team did. And so by definition, you're joining an angel group because they have more experience, et cetera, and they're bringing the table at that expertise. If you are an individual angel investor, hook up with individuals like yourself or others who've done deal flow, ask to look at the terms that they've received in the past, and it's an education process. I am hoping to actually create a course on just this topic area at some point down the road here. We talked about that uh, before uh, this interview. And uh, I think that's an area that really does need a group of people who have experienced these getting together. Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe you need to be the catalyst to say, hey, I want to get a group of Chicago angel investors who've done a fair number of deals, who've advised on these deals, and let's get together and talk about best practices on negotiation terms and so forth. Uh, I won't name names, but I remember uh, it was a funny situation of the uh, uh, founder handed me a term sheet that uh, they had gotten from their attorney, and there were two parts to it. Number one is I recognized the term sheet because actually it was just a cookie cutter of one that I had been involved in previously. And uh, uh, the other part, though, is the attorney had left terms in that were negotiating against themselves. In other words, it was actually too favorable for the angel investor. We got to that point through the negotiation process. So I'm sitting back going, holy Christ, you know, this is bad. So 
don't look at necessarily the attorneys out there as being the experts in it. They're not business guys. Talk to those who really understand investing, really understand where this fits in the total, how the implications of a 30% discount versus a 20% discount on a convertible note will impact you when you do 10 of these deals. Not one. One one by itself, eh, okay. 10 of them, though, it becomes meaningful, that difference. Yeah, I'm fortunate my brother is an attorney and we review terms. It's amazing. The things that, that jump out. And if you, we'll yeah, but, both, but, but, we'll both catch things, but yeah, but even then, I mean, you think about it when you and I met before and I told you what kind of discount I got and then that I had a term that if they didn't raise X money by X time, that my pre money went down like by, uh, like, yeah, per 80%. Contingent clauses, yeah. Contingent clauses. And you're like, holy Christ, right? Exactly. Okay. So you learn so though, much from just working with other. Exactly. Exactly. And so that would probably be the, the thing I'd say is, you know, search out, find the strong reputation people as an angel investor. Other angel investors have no problem. They, they you know, we're a special breed, special group of people here. Search them out. Don't be a loner in that regard. Develop that network of those angels and learn from each other. And we'll be stronger uh, on these deals. Okay. So perfect way to finish it out. Uh, recommending to connect with practitioners and angels and investors. So Glenn, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Well, earlier in a laugh, I, you know, I was partially facetious and not of <laughs> call Nick up. Uh, and, and, and I did mean to make you the gatekeeper. Uh, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, send me a message. More than happy to give you the 30 minutes also as an angel. My give back to to the community. I'll, I'll talk to anybody for, for a bit. So, Well, huge thanks to Glenn Gottfried. Glenn, you've been incredibly generous with your time with me. Uh, I always learn a tremendous amount when I meet with you. So uh, it's been a pleasure. No, appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Big thanks to Glenn for his thoughts on advising. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first takeaway is on advising early stage startups. If you don't have the necessary chops and expertise, you're doing yourself and the company a disservice. As an investor, consider your expertise, knowledge, and network before engaging as an advisor and rigorously evaluate yourself and ask if you're going to add value in the situation. And for the entrepreneur, if an investor is interested in becoming an advisor, they should be able to clearly articulate the value that they're bringing to the table. Do they have experience with exits? Is there deep sales and channel expertise in the vertical? Are they a CTO and or expert in software development? Can they connect you with customers? There are a number of strengths that should be considered. And even better, at times, investors can demonstrate their value add by taking some action even before a formal agreement is struck. This is a rare and unique scenario, but about eight months ago, I began working with a health and wellness fitness startup out of Boston. Originally, I was a huge fan of the idea, and the more I participated, the more opportunities I sought to help. For example, they did not have a presence in Chicago and I thought they were missing out on a big market. So without much effort, I was able to help generate a user base here that's outgrown the original locations. Uh, they also did not have a software expert on the founding team. While I would never call myself an expert, uh, in my younger years, I learned to code in a number of languages. Recently, my brother and I invested in a software development company. And because I work in the startup industry, I happen to know a number of developers. So I was able to wireframe a solution for them and connect with developers to find the right fit for their budget and schedule. Now, I'm not suggesting that every investor take this active of a role, but if you have a value add, 
are a strong believer in the startup, and they're at an early enough stage where you can help in a meaningful way on either product or traction, then what better way to demonstrate your enthusiasm than taking some sort of action? All right, the second takeaway is on the advice that founders get from a range of sources. Entrepreneurs will get a number of polar opposite viewpoints from investors, advisors, or accelerator mentors. Glenn's position is that the entrepreneur should assess and evaluate these positions rather than immediately adopting one or getting stuck between multiple. We all have our unique experience base and biases, so ultimately it's up to the entrepreneur to process all these inputs and make what they think is the best decision in the best interest of the company. All right, the last thing I wanted to recap is related to distinguishing between employees and advisors. Now, while advisors will have a range of involvement and contribution, they should be thought of as facilitators, not role players. While I helped jumpstart traction in a market for a startup, that was a one-time event, not an ongoing activity. So the board and the founder of an early-stage company must be very thoughtful about the stage the company is at and if the requirements are best filled by doers or facilitators. Okay, let's close out with the tip of the week. Uh, this week's tip is titled The Bridge to Nowhere. We talked earlier about the rolling close or the cascading close. My assumption upon entering the industry was that all fundraises would utilize escrow and a minimum amount of dollars would be required to trigger the round close and transfer the money over to the startup. However, to my surprise, there are a number of situations where this isn't the case and an escrow is not utilized. What this means is that startups are doing a rolling close during their fundraise. So while they may be raising a half million dollar round, they are collecting $10,000, $50,000, or $100,000 checks as they go. And many times it can take significantly longer to raise the money than expected. In other cases, a startup will fail to raise the total amount, and you'll hear these comments like, well, we decided to do a smaller round and raise more through our Series A next year. As an investor, one must be careful not to become a bridge financier, unless, of course, bridge financing is your strategy. And what I mean by a bridge is that you are providing capital that bridges or allows the startup to continue fundraising on the hope that they close the round. This is often considered one of the more risky types of capital because on top of all the other risk factors associated with startups, you are now adding the risk of their ability to fill the rest of the round. So as Glenn mentioned earlier, if an investor can't get escrow and is set on an investment, there should be a benefit to the first money in. Often I've seen startups around here set a date by which the investors get a larger discount on a convertible note. So if you get your money in by the end of next month, maybe you get a 25% discount instead of a 20% discount. If you aren't sure what caps and discounts are for convertible notes, we will be covering this in next week's episode all about the convertible note with Bill Payne. The real message here is that startups should create scarcity and incentives for investors to take action or pass. And as an investor, if you're not getting a benefit for first money in, then others likely aren't either, and you may just be funding a bridge to nowhere. All right, that wraps things up for this week. Glenn did mention during the interview that he was in the process of creating a course. I know that he has created that course, so I'd encourage you to reach out to him if you're interested in learning more about angel investing strategy. Okay, give me a follow on Twitter at The Full Ratchet or sign up for the newsletter on the site. Thank you to those who have pointed out the issue with the newsletter. Apparently, people are signing up and not getting the confirmation message or the emails. Uh, the newsletter company that I'm using is looking into it, and I hope to have it fixed shortly or will switch to a different provider. Uh, show notes and links are on the website at fullratchet.net. 
And as mentioned, we are covering convertible notes on next week's episode, so I hope you will give it a listen. Okay, until next week, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening. 